Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The McGrath Mac video laryngoscope and McGrath Mac disposable laryngoscope blades are intended to be used by trained and licensed individuals to gain a view of the vocal cords during medical procedures. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise cited. The speakers are responsible for all content and necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on safe airway management, how can video laryngoscopy help with intubating COVID patients? To help provide insight into this topic is Dr. David Saw, Director of Bronchoscopy and Interventional Pulmonology at Harbor UCLA Medical Center at Torrance, California. We'll talk a little bit about why uh, current recommendations are either for an N95 mask with a face shield combination or a capper or papper if that is available to you. But this is really one of the big differences in intubation of COVID patients as opposed to general ICU emergency or even intubations in the field. How we would intubate pre-COVID. We get up and personal in the face of the patient and uh, we're very in very close proximity to their mouth. Now, after COVID, one of the other considerations is we get gowned and gloved and have all sorts of layers of protection because of the potential transmission, which I think is, of course, uh, something that we have to consider when we talk about planning of timing of, uh, of uh, intubation. So this is directly from the CDC website, and this is changing quite constantly. But again, the take-home message is this. I think we're learning a lot more about how COVID-19 spreads. So in and above and beyond just talking about how do we intubate patients, I think one of the things we also have to address is how do we keep our medical providers safe? Because obviously we all wanna be safe for ourselves, for our families. But on top of that is we are also resources for our society that we provide a very necessary care. So I think one of the concerns is we always talk about people who are coughing or sneezing or talking. Well, if we're really up and close and personal with our patients as we're uh, bagging them or dealing with them in acute respiratory failure, uh, there's high risk for aerosolization or droplet formation. And then of course, it's often impossible for us to stay more than six feet away, uh, even though we would like to do that normally. So let's talk a little about infection control. Ideally, if we have an aerosol generating procedure, which intubation is, we prefer not to do it. So elective bronchoscopies, elective uh, other surgical procedures, we try to avoid whenever possible. But unfortunately for the acute respiratory failure patient, we don't have that choice. So things that we can do to improve our safety, negative pressure rooms, Ideally, if we can move our patient into that type of setting, it protects the, the other providers around us. And then let's talk a little bit about surgical masks versus respirator masks. 
we obviously have preferred to move to N95 masks or something higher to protect, protect our care providers. Now, aside from N95 masks, we talked a little bit about uh, the face shield. Patients cough, patients breathe, and therefore they aerosolize. And it's not just what we breathe in, but what gets into our mucous glands and our nose or our face. And of course, I'm horrible at this. We always rub our eyes or our face. So this is another consideration. Pre-COVID, we would be looking at the gear that we would prepare. They have uh, the, the proverbial tackle box that we always bring with our medications and our DL equipment, but you can see the bougie and some of the backup equipment that they have there as well. But now we have to consider all the PPE and uh, the protection that we need uh, to prepare ourselves. So in addition to that, because I think we all had to learn how to don and how to doff to be protective of ourselves, one of the other things that we have to consider is the act of intubation. Because as we talked about previously, if we, or if we intubate with a DL, we're gonna be very close to the patient's face. The usual joke I always tell my wife is, please don't get jealous, but the closest people I am to over the course of the day is my wife, my kids, and the person that I intubated, because you're within inches of their face. Now, what are some of the benefits of video laryngoscopy for the protection of the provider? We talked a little bit about the value with regards to the speed and the efficacy with the intubation process itself. But you'll notice the difference in how far you are away from the patient's face. Now, in addition to that, one of the things that often gets unspoken is the ergonomics. You're not bending over, you're not bending your back over. Now in the operating room or in a more controlled environment, perhaps that may not be as big of a deal because you can prepare everything. But we've all been in the cramped spaces of the ICUs. I've only heard the stories coming from my EMS colleagues where they're in the back of uh, an ambulance that's moving. Um, the ergonomics are much better such that you can manage with all the equipment that you're trying to crawl between uh, to do or perform your video laryngoscopy. So again, one of the unspoken potential benefits of, uh, of video laryngoscopy. And this has actually gotten to the point where a number of different pr providers and societies across the globe have talked about this. This is uh, a letter coming out of uh, France in Lancet early in the COVID pandemic, where they said because of the COVID-19 pandemic, everyone should be pre uh, preferably intubating with video laryngoscopy. Similarly, this is a guideline statement from the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society, where they said that, again, video laryngoscopy is the preferential first-line approach. And then we're probably familiar with the surviving sepsis campaign in a number of different uh, uh, ways that they have uh, put out guideline statements for critical care. But with regards to intubation, specifically in the COVID-19 pandemic, they mentioned how uh, in their estimation, they recommend that intubation should be performed by healthcare workers who have experience. This is not a good place or a good time for a novice uh, to be involved because we want to minimize the number of attempts, as we talked about from a complication standpoint, and also the amount of time that we are in the room performing this procedure and therefore have risk to the other providers there. And then lastly, they recommend uh, usage or consideration of usage of a COVID, uh, oh, sorry, of a video laryngoscope in our COVID-19 or suspected COVID-19 patients. So there is a saying uh, in, in English 
that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think some of us have all seen these types of contraptions. And I think this really speaks to the innovative minds that we have at work uh, all through the medical field. Now, some of you may have tried that we'll put a bag. I used to cut a plastic bag that we would use to hold our endotracheal tube equipment that our RTs would carry around. And I would cut that in half so therefore I could lay that as a sheet over the patient to try to minimize any aerosolization. Now, your practices may, different, may differ from mine. There are very little or very few data that are out there. And this is a little bit of a data-free zone. I think we've seen that aspect in many aspects of uh, pulmonary critical care medicine, emergency medicine uh, throughout this COVID pandemic. Um, what I've encountered, this is my personal anecdotal experience, is that this ended up becoming a little bit more of a hassle than perhaps it was worth because the problem was is that we would get tied up with the bag and this became very popular. Now, there are now starting to be some emerging data that these methodologies, including this intubation box, may not be as successful as we would like to think in preventing aerosolization. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing is, does it allow you to successfully intubate or not hinder you from successfully intubating while at the same time giving you some additional value or protection to your providers. Now, the problem that we've encountered at our institution is you'll notice where those armholes are. They're fixed armholes. Now, I've worked with some providers who are six foot six, and I also have some of my fellows who are under five feet. You can quickly do some math and triangulation, something about uh, the hypotenuse of a triangle, and you realize where the patient has to be relative to the length of the arms of those providers is gonna vary greatly. So one of the colleagues that I had who was six foot six, the patient was so far away from the intubation box, they were essentially out of the box. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that this may not work for everyone. And again, I think we really wanna see what the data shows because I think while in our best intentions, we're trying to find new and innovative ways to do things. We don't want to lose sight of what is tried and true, the methods that we know have been studied, that we have data on, and let's not gravitate too far away from that. This happens to be, again, I thought that this was really amazingly clever, but again, we're going to want to see what the data shows as to how well these actually work. But again, just shows you uh, the innovative minds at work with regards to this COVID-19 pandemic. How do I approach intubation? It's not just the method that we talked about or the PPE. That first line here, advanced planning and clear communication. Because now I think we have a scenario where we have a very high stakes, high risk. Everyone was very anxious and agitated. The first few times we started intubating our COVID patients six months ago, so having that communication with your team is critical. So again, everybody's gonna have a different practice style, but what our institutional practice was is that we had initially three intubators in the room. Well, three people, one primary intubator, the physician, we would have one nurse and one RT. I would have a fourth person who was outside the room and I would bring everyone together for a huddle because before we walked in the door, we would talk about what we were planning on doing what my approach was, 
Am I going to start with a video laryngoscopy? What am I going to do if that fails? Where is our backup equipment? The reason why I had a fourth person outside of the room is I didn't want to bring everything into the room with me. So they would keep uh, some of my backup equipment right outside the door, but they would know the preferential order that I would have. So if I signaled them that, hey, I need the bougie, hey, I need the bronchoscope, they knew what to give me and how to get it to me quickly. And so therefore we wouldn't contaminate all of our equipment. We also had an IV that was already running and we would already have uh, our nurses preparing sedation medications. We often see these patients get hypotensive during the course of intubation. So they are preparing uh, vasopressors to run right away. So everything was in the room ready to go. In our ICU, we happen to be fortunate to have negative pressure rooms, and that is ideal or preferred. And then we had the most experienced provider. So that was our attendings. Now, as the course of the pandemic has shifted, we've also started incorporating our senior trainees into this because this is going to be part of our daily life. COVID is not going anywhere in the short term, at least. Um, and then also, we would have our respiratory therapist set up a ventilator, but on the expiratory limb, we may, would make sure that they had a filter. Because again, where does that air go? It goes back into the room. So we have to protect our providers who are in there all the time, our nursing staff, uh, our x-ray techs, our EKG techs, so on and so forth. Now, this is one that uh, I think a lot of us have had different practice styles on right here, which is, um, what do we do? How do we confirm that we are in the airway? Normally, one of the common methods is we would use one of those little col colorimetry uh, changers that detects CO2 and it changes from uh, purple to yellow. We've all seen them and used them. Um, one of the concerns that we've had is, well, is there a way that I can minimize bagging the patient? Because I want to minimize aerosolization, if at all possible. So this happens to be what our practice is, but one of the things that we do is we will set up an inline end tidal CO2 capnography system on our ventilator. So once I ask the nurse to push RSI meds, we intubate the patient, I will keep the, the uh, video laryngoscope in place so I'm visualizing the tube through the vocal cords, and then I'll ask the RT to hook up straight to the ventilator without bagging. And then I will use the end tidal CO2 monitor to tell me are we successfully in? And of course, visually, I can see them uh, that we are directly in. The other thing I would want to stress is while we're in the room, we try to minimize the amount of talking. And I have closed loop communication. So that way, I don't have to see, did my nurse push the uh, rapid sequence intubation meds? I will ask for them to push atomidate. They will concur and say 25 of atomidate uh, being pushed right now. So I know that it's happening. And this is this closed loop communication. This has actually been used in uh, the aerospace industry and in with airline pilots for, for many, many years. And this is something that we've incorporated into uh, many of our medical practices. Um, and then lastly, what about our backup equipment? So some of the equipment, as I mentioned, I would keep outside the room and I would have a fourth person just to be an assistant to provide us that as we needed it. But some of the equipment I would want to bring into the room. So I would put them into a clear plastic bag, have them hanging on our uh, one of our other pieces or devices or on an IV pole, and it just sits there. And if we don't use it, we take it back out, we save the contents of the bag, and we throw away the bag. So the bag protects our tracheostomy or emergency uh, cricothyrotomy kits that we don't want to replace uh, every single time 
we intubate, but we want to have them in close proximity in case we need them in case of emergency. So lastly, let's talk a little bit about timing because all this preparation that we're talking about takes time. So I think one of the things that we have value that we're, that we're learning with, with COVID is that we can often see how they're progressing through the course of the disease. I mentioned a little bit earlier, I have our RTs and our hospitalists, they are basically our ICU eyes and ears on the ground. When they start seeing or nurses start reporting that, hey, we had a patient who for the last three, four five days was on two or three or four liters of nasal cannula. But all of a sudden, you know what? Last night, they started to require more, a Veni mask or a non-rebreather. And we see that rapid escalation coming. Maybe we need to put them on high flow nasal cannula. Those are patients that I see are going into that cytokine storm period that we were talking about. And we will bring them back over uh, to the ICU for closer monitoring because I don't know where they're gonna go, but I know that tra the trajectory of the disease is heading in the wrong direction. Now, we often will self-prone these patients even before they get intubated. And we know that proning seems to work very well for a lot of these patients. But because of that, let's say I decide I need to intubate them. They're prone. I'm going to need to supinate them. So I need to take that into consideration with my timing, as well as the fact that they may desaturate when I flip them back over into a supine position. And remember, I also need to, or we need to um, put their neck in a neutral position such that we can position them properly, ideally while they're still awake, before I give the RSI meds because once I give the RSI meds, they're going to uh, decompensate very quickly or they, they become hypoxic very quickly. So this I think is a graph that is really important. And I think we have probably all seen this. So let me walk you through this. Over here on the x-axis, we have uh, time in minutes. And then over on the y-axis, we have saturations. And we know in normal circumstances, I almost never intubate a normal person by definition because I'm an ICU doctor, but my anesthesia colleagues might. When they bag a patient and they hyperoxygenate them and they try to wash out all the CO2, but more importantly, wash out all the nitrogen out of the residual volume, those patients, when they're apneic, they may still maintain a reasonable saturation for several minutes. Now, this orange line, we've all seen this. The obese population, which we said is very common in our COVID population. We see the obese population that they have less residual volume because of the chest wall compliance or the decreased chest wall compliance, and they desaturate much more quickly. Now, let's make it one step more difficult. You see this green or turquoise color, and that's the moderately ill patient. Sometimes, despite your best efforts, you bag them, you use a PEEP valve, you can't get them greater than 92, 93, 94%. And we've all had really severe patients where it's even worse than that. They desaturate much more rapidly as well. So you combine a sick patient who happens to be obese, like we often encounter, who is prone, we really need to be careful about our timing of when we do uh, our intubation because it's hard to get all of our equipment together, all of our personnel together, and hurry up and do this in a safe fashion. So one of the questions that often comes up is, do I bag my patients? And this is gonna be a different practice depending upon the situation. Most of the time, I try to avoid bagging the patient 
Not that we have great data. We don't have great data on the amount of aerosolization from bagging. But if I can, most of the time, our patients are already on high-flow nasal cannula. So most of the time, for the most part, their residual volume is more or less washed out already. So the additional benefit of bagging may not really be there. So what I will do is I will put them in a supine position, keep, keep them on the, uh, the high-flow nasal cannula, and then everyone will be ready to go. That's when we will drop the head of the bed, ask the nurse to give my rapid sequence intubation medications, and I won't bag. I'll have about uh, 10 to 15 seconds before those medications kick in, and then I will go ahead and insert my video laryngoscope and go ahead and intubate. Most of the time I can get our patients intubated uh, in about five to 10 seconds, and then combine, uh, combining that with uh, the dead time for the medications to circulate, you're probably talking about 20 to 30 seconds. Now, is that perfect? The answer is of course not. There have been situations, we've all seen that, despite the perfect intubation setup, the patient still desaturates down to the 60s, you have them on the ventilator, and it's a long, slow climb out of hypoxia land. We've all seen this, right? Um, so therefore, there are some situations that we've encountered where we've had to bag. But when we do, I generally try to use a two-provider approach to maximize the seal that we get with the AMBU bag. And then on top of that, um, we, we will also uh, uh, try to minimize that bagging as much as possible, and we'll use a PEEP valve because generally we're going to know that these patients will benefit from additional PEEP uh, that they're going to lose when they collapse their lungs or develop atelectasis during the course of the induction process. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.